Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Michael Dell from Dell Computers talks about what happened when he tried negotiating with Steve Jobs and what does the future hold, including the future of Bitcoin. During this later time when you were, you know, dealing with all this Wall Street stuff, you've also were going through your own deciding what you wanted to do and and who should be CEO of Dell and what kind of person you'd want as CEO. What do you think makes a good leader of a hundred billion dollar company that's never run such a company before? Like, how can you tell? (laughs) First of all, when you look across the spectrum of leaders, I don't think you know. There's kind of one answer to that question, right? There are many, many ways to successfully lead. I think, you know, you want some combination of empathy and curiosity, and being able to see around corners, and being resourceful, and being able to engage and inspire teams. There are certainly ways to prepare, uh, but then you know, when somebody gets in in that seat. How do they actually respond emotionally to all the pressures and stresses and everything else? It's a unique job given the scale of a business like ours. How do you inspire employees? Passion, what what gets them excited, what gets them motivated? Why is what we're doing super important to the world? And how can uh, you know they make a difference in that? How can they succeed? We're doing things that are unbelievably important for our customers. We have the tools that we need. It's in our control. We're having fun. It's interesting. It's exciting. It's an adventure. You know, all that. And to what extent should an employee sometimes think like an entrepreneur? Like when often they have a set of things they need to do given to them by their boss who is given those things by his boss or her boss and so on, all the way up to the CEO. To what extent should an employee be thinking, oh, I have a better way and I should try this and kind of break out on their own? And is that a, is that a typical path to success is kind of employees, employees who are entrepreneurial? Well, this is kind of a big 
problem, you know, as, as organizations get big, they, they will have a, a kind of less risk appetite and uh, try to suppress these kind of people you're talking about. <laughs> and so uh, I think it's really important for organizations to, you know, allow space for that and to nurture that and actually reward it. Um, and so you, you want to embrace risk and, and make sure there's, there's a, there's a, a place for it. You obviously don't want it everywhere, but you know, when you're trying to do new things and, you know, innovating, coming up with new solutions, you're going to need people to take plenty of risk and to have very entrepreneurial approaches. You know, I wonder if this, like, you know, obviously the founders of all these big companies, they remain entrepreneurial all throughout. And, uh, uh, you know, you've been very entrepreneurial throughout the whole career of, of Dell. And I, I was remember the story in, in your book where you're negotiating with Steve Jobs about licensing his operating system for the Dell computer. And it was very aggressive terms that he was proposing. And do you think that is key for success, both in an entrepreneurial creative sense, but also in a financial sense? Like he was just very, the deal he was trying to negotiate with you to license the Mac operating system. I would, if I was in his place, I would think, ah, I just, I like Michael. I want to do a deal with him. What deal's good for you? Let's just do a deal. But he was just very hardcore about trying to squeeze the maximum amount of dollars in that deal. And the deal sounded like it would end poorly for you. <laughs> yeah. So that, that wasn't a deal that, 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 that made any sense. Um, and you know, I, I think, I think there's an element of, of shrewd negotiating and, and understanding, you know, economics at a, at a fine molecular detail that's obviously important, uh, you know, in, in, in run, in running a business at the same time, I think, I think, uh, you know, you do want to look for, you know, win-win situations and how do you, how do you split the difference and how do you create some, you know, any, any partnership that's going to work over any reasonable period of time has got to be somewhat mutually beneficial. Right. And so it seems like he wasn't either. He wasn't aware how you would benefit in the long run or not from this deal, or I don't know, like, why do you think some negotiators are, are, so shrewd, they almost outshrewed themselves. Yeah, I, I think, I think he was still feeling around and trying to figure out, you know, what would happen, uh, you know, if he licensed the Mac OS. I mean, I know he was very worried that our scale and supply chain, you know, nobody would buy Macs anymore. They would just buy the machines from us with, with their operating system. And so, you know, what, what he proposed didn't really make any economic sense. Um, Particularly the fact that he wasn't guaranteeing to support it in later years. So he could potentially pull your customer base from you without notice, essentially. Right. So it, it was, it was definitely a, a deal, a deal we, we weren't going to do. So, you know, now you've achieved the success, you built this great company. It's going to last forever. It's a forever company and hopefully. And you spend a lot of time on philanthropy. What do you think is, there's a lot of talk in society right now about 
income inequality, for better or for worse. What do you think is the role of people like yourself or Jeff Bezos or others in terms of philanthropy and, and, you know, what, what practices do you put in place to kind of, you know, be helpful to society in other ways other than Dell? Not that Dell isn't enough, but. Yeah, well, that's kind of the point is, is, is we, you know, uh, we, we've sort of said, gee, you know, how could we do something philanthropically that has a greater impact than the impact the company has had? We don't exactly know how to do that, but we're working to figure it out. I mean, we've been focused on children and urban poverty, and that's had us focusing on, you know, education and, you know, family economic stability. And, you know, we've looked for things where we can alter the trajectory of uh, groups of people so that they're you know, their, their lives five years on are, are meaningfully different. They have new skills, they have new opportunities that they didn't have before. And so, uh, you know, uh, as, as opposed to kind of a perpetual, you know, here's, here's a subsidy or something like that. (laughs) So, so our, our, our foundation is really focused on, uh, mostly those, those kind of, projects where, where we can, you know, meaningfully impact people's lives. You know, I, I was wondering during the, all the economic lockdowns, particularly in major cities like New York city, something like 80,000 small businesses ended up going out of business permanently in New York city. And of course, many businesses survive because of, you know, the government stimulus and so on. Is there a role for the, the super wealthy to, kind of help out, I'm not saying, um, is it necessary? I'm just saying, is there a possibility or is there a role for, for those who, you know, have the means to kind of help out in these unique, difficult situations like these lockdowns, knowing that the government's probably not going to do the best job in whatever it is they're supposed to do there. I don't know if I'm asking this right, but I was just, I was wondering, like everybody was, was writing articles like, oh, I'm going to buy real estate in New York as a way to help New York city, but that doesn't quite help a city. What, what was the role of philanthropy during these lockdowns? Do you think? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the way we approached it was, uh, you know, we, first of all, one of the things we noticed was that the people that we were working with and helping, they did have some, some severe and significant challenges. And so they needed even more help during that period. So, you know, we, we, you know, initially set up uh, a special hundred million dollar, you know, fund uh, within our foundation related to COVID and uh, did a lot of the things you're talking about with small businesses and how do you help folks through that difficult period? I mean, I think, you know, we saw certain, Businesses and organizations were more digitally enabled, you know, than others, and uh, you know, certain kinds of things just really hard to do uh, if if you can't do it in person. But yeah, I think anybody who has had success, great fortune, great opportunity, I view it as a as a responsibility to figure out how can you do something meaningful to help others, and it's a it's a 
a super important part of how, how I think about the next portion of, of, of my life. And certainly, you know, talk about that in the book as well, in terms of, of, uh, you know, most vast majority of, of, uh, my wealth will be, will be used for philanthropy. And, and what do you think will happen now? Like people, are people going to go back to work? More than 50% of people have said they don't, they prefer working remotely. Many companies are, are permanently remote now. Like, how do you see the, even the economic landscape changing and the, and the work landscape changing. And, and look, Dell, uh, one way or the other, Dell is pivotal to this. People work at home, they're going to buy different computers than if they're, or they're going to buy more computers because they have some computer at the, in the cubicle and some more computers at home. And I don't know it, it what's going to happen next. It impacts your business as well, or, or you might have some foresight into what's happening. I think, you know, what we've seen is so many people and organizations have figured out that, you know, work is not a place. It's something you do. And hmm. you know, a lot of people were pretty skeptical about work from home, but, uh, you know, a lot of that skepticism has been dropped, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, people in the organization say, hey, I like this flexibility. and what is really the objective function of being in an office? Well, there is an objective function for certain you know, uh, times and places and things that you're doing. And so what is that going to look like? I think it'll vary by organization. I mean, it, you'll, you'll see businesses that say, all right, uh, for these functions, these groups, we're going to meet on these certain days in person, these other days, you can come to the office if you want. You can work somewhere else. As long as you get your work done, it's all cool, right? And so, um, yeah, I think I think we we got a glimpse of the future, and we're not going to go back to the way it was. And people have learned behaviors in everything that 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 they're doing, whether it's you know healthcare, education, entertainment, work, etc. And now, you know, things come to you. You don't, you don't necessarily go to them. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, it's interesting. The um, I don't know if he's an economist or urban planner, but the author Richard Florida has said that one role of cities is to be this kind of fountainhead of ideas and creativity for young people. It's where it's where ideas and businesses and arts get started. But we saw so many people leave San Francisco, LA, New York City, and you're sitting in Austin, I'm in New York City. The, the beneficiaries have been the Austins. And Austin's probably the biggest beneficiary in the United States, perhaps Austin and, and Miami and maybe Denver, of people leaving San Francisco, LA, and, and New York City. So there's this dispersal of talent that was huddled in those cities for a long time do you think that's like a a permanent change in the the landscape of America or, or the world? Well, I think I mean I certainly interacted with plenty of people that have that have moved to Austin, Texas recently, and you know the way they describe it is basically okay. I get some services from the government, right? You know, the government provides some kind of uh, security or, you know, uh, infrastructure, you know, education, whatever. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are just saying, well, you know, uh, what, what am I getting in return? How much am I paying for that? Right. <laughs> and, and if it, if it costs a lot less in one place versus another, but I can still do everything that I, that I want to do and it's, you know, works just as well, or maybe in some cases better, I mean, I think cities still play an important role and, and people want to be in the beehive of activity and they want to be around other interesting people. I don't see it as a, like, Silicon Valley is going to fail and Austin's going to succeed. I think they can actually both succeed. But, um, yeah, I mean, with, you know, super broadband connectivity, 5G, people will be able to work more from anywhere, which is which is not a bad thing. And and where do you see Dell's role, the, the company's role in, let's say, the the near future? Like what what technological changes are you starting to have the foresight to think about that your, your company should be developing in in the next phase of technology, whether it's like you say, broadband all the time, everywhere you go, or you know, there's gonna be a lot more AI uh uh employees or, 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 you know, efficiencies generated by AI. What do you, what do you see as, as happening with technology in the near future and, and, and Dell's role in it? Yeah, I think there are a number of super interesting things going on. You know, the first is that everything in the physical world is becoming intelligent. In other words, you know, you've got microprocessors and software and microcontrollers inside everything you know used to be just the computers were intelligent right now 
everything's becoming uh, a, a, a computer or computer controlled in some way. And the next step in that is everything's becoming connected. And so then you have 5G. And so then you get this world of not people talking to machines, but machines talking to machines. And that generates incredible amounts of data. And so you sort of get to reimagine everything uh, in, in, in the world with, and while the last, you know, three or four decades have been super interesting and exciting, I think it's all just a pre-game show to what's about to come. So you have this sort of multi-cloud world with edge uh, computing, enormous amounts of data. You know, the amount of data in the world is doubling probably every seven months or so, except that, that, Time is shrinking, you know, every, every day that goes by, uh, you know, the networks are getting software defined. And so, and, and of course, it's so much data, you know, humans can't really do anything with it. It has to be machine learning and AI. So all of that creates enormous opportunities. And, uh, you know, I think the other big thing that you'll see is the technology sector you know, will will become a much bigger part of the of the economy, and not because of the IT departments, but because of everything else inside the organization. And you know, there's also this kind of generational shift where the business leaders and the business line executives, the CEOs, ha- are are now you know fully understanding that technology is the fulcrum of progress in pretty much every industry. So, you know. Like what's the most amazing thing in all your recent adventures, and you probably look at new technologies all the time, what's the most amazing thing you've seen that's either here or coming right down the road? I think, you know, when you, when you look at what's going on in the intersection of the biological and computational sciences with gene editing and CRISPR and that stuff is super interesting. I think, uh, you know, look just right in front of our eyes in the last uh, year or so, right? We had these mRNA vaccines. That's amazing technology that, you know, uh, appeared in all of our lives or, well, maybe not everybody, but hopefully everybody's lives, uh, you know, in a short period of time. And, uh, incredible. So I, I think the next 10 years, you know, in that field are going to be, uh, amazing and it's all driven by computational power, AI, machine learning, and being able to, you know, decode all this stuff. And if, if you just take sort of a group of scientists and you say, okay, let's list out the, you know, 20 biggest unsolved mysteries of the world. Well, guess what? You know, it's computational power <laughs> that's going to solve and address many of those, you know, in the the period right in front of us. Right. Like if you think about like with genomics and gene editing, like you were just saying, it's, it's obviously the cost of sequence to the genome has gone from a billion dollars to $50. So that's, it's just like how computer growth grew exponentially started off, you know, with 
you know, very little computing power for a computer. But then of course now it's, it's amazing. And the same thing's going to happen with genomics. And we don't, I think the most people don't quite see it yet. Um, but, um, uh, right now genomics is good for, uh, single gene mutations, things like that, where you could identify the exact gene that's causing a disease, for instance, but issues with protein folding or, m or multiple genes that need to be edited. AI is going to have to play a role in that, for instance, just because humans can't, the complexity is too much. Yeah. And, and AI, you know, drug discovery, uh, and, you know, all the, the, the work around proteins, uh, is, is highly conducive to the advances in, 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 in computational power. And, uh, I think, you know, you know, what we think of as cancer, which obviously is, is many, many different forms. I think, I think the next 10 years, we're going to see enormous progress on that, you know, driven by all this power. And so what about, uh, in other areas, like what about money? Do you, do you see anything in Bitcoin? Uh, is that something interesting to you? Yeah. Blockchain is, is very interesting. I mean, I think there's obviously uh, some hype there, and and some of it is is not going to work, but that's true of any new technology. We definitely see blockchain having some use. Our customers are experimenting. You know, even even you know, if if you look at sort of the the hundred largest companies in the world, almost all of them have blockchain related. Uh, programs or certainly pilot programs that that uh, you know could 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 have a, a you know meaningful impact on you know on on their business. Like, what do you have going on? You know, it's it's in it's in uh, supply chain uh, chain of chain of custody. Um, you know, uh, logistics. Um, you know, and and then building uh, tools to help our, our our customers in banking, uh, in you know uh, insurance, uh, because they need a, a kind of enterprise grade blockchain that can create new capabilities. But I would say you know we're we're definitely you know in 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 the in the enterprise customers. It's it's more in the experiment, test, pilot kind of stage. Would you put uh, Dell's any of Dell's cash reserves in a cryptocurrency, or you haven't really dealt with that? Not ready to do that just yet. Um, you know, I've I've certainly made some some personal investments in 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 that uh, to 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 understand it a little more and and uh, that sort of thing. But um, there's no Bitcoin on the Dell balance sheet at the moment. What about what about cybersecurity? This is obviously a huge issue for you, probably since day one of your business. Is it possible to defend ultimately against an aggressive enemy um, who's using cybersecurity, like a, like a North Korea or God forbid a China that decides to attack? Because all the time we hear like, "Oh, Twitter out for three hours," and then it was some sort of weird attack. So this is clearly happening all the time, all around the world. Is there, are we as smart as the bad guys? They only have to succeed once and we have to defend everywhere. So that's part of the problem. 
Well, the the cat and mouse game has been going on you know, since the beginning of time. I think it's going to keep going on. And one of the challenges relates to what we talked about earlier, which is everything becoming connected. So the attack surface becomes a thousand times larger. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, you're still dealing with you know, humans who can make mistakes and be tricked and fooled. And so you know, it's, it's a constant, uh, battle. You know, uh, we, we are building better and better technology that makes it super tough for the bad guys, uh, which are concentrated in four specific countries, uh, you know, <laughs> um, to, 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 you know, to, to get into these systems and I- increasingly, you know, we, we, we think about intrinsic security is to say, how do we build security into the, you know, cloud service and the product that we're creating? Uh, because, you know, trying to bolt these things on, and there are thousands of security companies that all claim to solve the problem. Some of them have to be lying. There's no way that it's all true. And even if it was, nobody can, you know, interpret a thousand different security company. So it's got to be more integrated and part of the solution. And, um, you know, the other thing is that, that, you know, that, uh, you know, um, we have to, we have to recognize, you know, when, when, when we, when we get on a, 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 you know, commercial airplane, you know, we go through various checks because we, we, uh, you know, we, we don't want somebody getting on that plane that, that wasn't checked, right? So, so you know, we, we, we do give up some little bit of privacy to ensure we're secure. Look, Michael, I know you're pressed for time and I want to be respectful. I really encourage people to read Play Nice But Win by Michael Dell. Again, I feel like it's a guidebook not only for entrepreneurship and, and your story is iconic. Like, it's like the dream... I. I am jealous of that story. I wish that happened. I wish I put together computers in my dorm room in the 80s. And then it was also about, you know, the, the book has lots of great Wall Street stories, stories about what you're doing now with with philanthropy, stories of your interactions with Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, others. Do you ever do you ever just wake up in the morning and call like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or Larry Page and say, "Hey, what's up?" Not not exactly. Uh, yeah, we you know we hang hang out with with lots of other you know folks in in, in the industry and and uh, you know uh, you know don't like to don't like to be serious all the time. So uh, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> all right, well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, and everybody should should read this book. It's a it's a great, easy to read book. Thank you, James. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.